For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, Herd Tell Show. It's a Thursday, folks. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us for Herd Tell. Going to try to turn down the noise and the news cycle on a couple different things on today's program. Uh, going to touch in a piece by our friend M. Carpenter, our legal eagle and senior writer at Ordinary-Times.com. She's writing about Supreme Court rulings on two congressional map cases that went up in pivotal states, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Not just the rulings, but what they probably mean going forward for the next batch of cases that'll inevitably end up at the Supreme Court. Talk about that a little bit. Going to end the show. Great story. Uh, Andrew Whitworth, uh, the tackle for the Super Bowl champion, L.A. Rams. Also won Walter Payton Man of the Year. The speech he gave about community service, about using social media. Want to make sure you hear his words and what he says about it. There's a lot of wisdom there, how to do charity. Uh, We'll end the program on our happy note like we always do. Great guest back again by popular demand. Uh, Sarah Stook, a historian friend from over in the UK. She has a piece out at elections-daily.com on presidential education, presidents that went to college, presidents that didn't go to college, the Ivy League versus the non-Ivy League presidents, a whole lot of really surprising information on our presidents. We're going to talk a little history to get a break from the culture and politics, but it also has some implications for the future. Have we seen the last president that did not go to college to ever hold office? Have we seen the last president that didn't go to an Ivy League school? President uh, Biden did not. But that might be more of an exception than a rule the way things are trending. We're going to talk about all that. Sarah Stook a little bit later on in the program. But first, uh, we're also going to talk about a story out of Colorado, but it's happening all over the country. Uh, the cost of health care. Why do you go in for a $1,000 surgery and wind up with a $300,000 bill? We will delve into that, set it up. Something we're going to be talking about in the future, just going to kind of set it up for you. Story out of the Denver Post. But first, uh Russia continues to dominate the world stage right now. Here's the story out of the Washington Post. The headline, a new Iron Curtain descends on Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine. Now, let's back up for folks that don't remember. The Iron Curtain was what we called the old Soviet Union. They had an information blockade. Of course, they had the Berlin Wall, physical barriers. They had an absolute lock on technology. There's the famous uh, kitchen debate, they called it. Where uh, he looks around the he looked around an American kitchen and went well clearly this is all made up because no home has all these fancy appliances and all this. Um, there's the famous photo of of Gorbachev in the supermarket uh, looking at all the bounty. Not used to those things. The Iron Curtain held back information. The Washington Post says there's a new Iron Curtain. And it says the dramatic severing is the result of punishing restrictions put in place by the United States and Europe, reading from the Washington Post, including bans on Russian aircraft flying in Western airspace and sanctions on the central bank. 
It has been compounded by a voluntary exodus of international companies from the Russian market. But the isolation is a function of repressive measures Putin has taken at home. <laughs> Sound familiar? Old Soviet guy, old KGB guy. Habits die hard. Those moves have curbed the free flow of information online, contained public protests, and sent thousands of Russians fleeing abroad, fearing the possibility of martial law, conscription, or closed borders in a country careening more towards a severe form of authoritarianism. Quote, as Putin tries to reduce Ukraine to rubble, he is also turning Russia into a prison, under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Newland said during testimony before Congress on Tuesday. The result is the rise of a pariah state version of Russia, which has swiftly become a place many of its own citizens don't even recognize, one where money is subject to capital controls, where the radio and television stations of the Russian intelligentsia no longer broadcast, where TikTok won't accept video uploads, and where the Russian team cannot compete in any FIFA or Olympic events. Some supermarkets are even limiting the amount of flour and sugar. Remember, we talked about supermarkets a minute. Coming back. Consumers can purchase and shoppers are hoarding items from Ikea, H&M, and Zara before they become relics of a bygone era. All those stores are closing their Russia locations. Hollywood studios are stopping the release of films while Europe is no longer a nearby stomping ground, but an ever more inaccessible universe brimming with anger at Russians. Quote, for the average person who is less economically integrated with the rest of the world, they are going to feel it first when it comes to the prices. They are going to see things disappear from the shelves, said Christy Ironside, a historian at McGill University who focuses on Russia. For the younger professional class, this is going to be devastating to them. Their lives are really going to change and change quickly. As the ruble plummets and companies retreat, Russia won't be able to get items they have been used to. And even if those items are available, many won't be able to afford them. For decades, even rogue countries like North Korea and Iran participated in the Olympics and World Cup, and the teams from the Soviet Union participated, except for the boycott years, the Olympics, of course. Now this is all gone. This is how Russian people know that something has gone terribly wrong. Let's pause right here for a second. The idea, of course, is that we have to punish Russia. Unfortunately, the burden of that is going to fall on the Russian people. Remember, Russia is not a normal country. We talk about it over and over again. It's an oligarchy ran as a criminal enterprises with the trapping of state surrounding it. Yes, they're a country, that, but they're ran like a mobster organization by the oligarchs and Putin as the head of it. The pain is going to be felt mostly by the individual and long-suffering Russian people. Now, they know how to suffer. They've done plenty of it. If you remember the, if you remember the Chernobyl miniseries, one of the great lines in there is that this is what our people do. We suffer. We overcome. Uh, we want to be very careful. Our beef is with Putin and the oligarchs. It is not with the Russian people more broadly. But I want to issue a word of warning here. Putin is shutting down the information flow into the country. And that means all the pain that they're going to suffer, all of the information they are going to get, is it's the West's fault that they're suffering. The West is oppressing Russia. The West is punishing Russia. The West is being aggressive towards Russia. Now, that sounds ludicrous to us because we have the big picture. But there's a long history of Russian paranoia and Russian victimization, and it plays right into it, these sanctions, and Putin is going to be able to convince large swaths of the Russian people that this is all the West's fault. Now, some of the technology will still creep in. There'll be, you know, the internet is undefeated. It'll find ways in. But don't be surprised and don't expect a massive uprising of Russian people, at least on the outset, because this will feed into years and decades of Russian victimization and Russian paranoia that Putin himself is exhibiting, quite frankly, that they're the victims, that the West is picking on them.
remember, we talked at the beginning of this, that there's certain things that propaganda can't overcome. Propaganda can't overcome dead soldiers. Propaganda can't overcome a crashed economy. Propaganda cannot overcome people when they cannot eat and they cannot function and they cannot move around and they cannot travel. But where does the blame go when the anger starts? Vladimir Putin and his intelligence operation is going to try to put the blame on the rest. And it may work, but these young professionals that were just talked about in Washington Post, they've lived a very different life than the world that Vladimir Putin lived in most of his, where he came from the old Soviet system. They're used to more freedom. They're used to Western things. They're used to the internet. They're used to the luxuries of life if they're able to get them. And those are going to go away in a hurry. Those are the class of people to pay attention to. Will the oligarch friends that support Putin and keep him propped up, will they turn on him? And will that uprising class of younger people who have had that taste of wider freedom start to see Putin for what he really is and start to rise up? These are things to watch, but don't put your American principles on the Russian people. They're not Americans. They are people and there's universal application there of people wanting to be free and people wanting to have better than what they have. But they also have lived in a system under Vladimir Putin where their information is different, they're culturally different, their mindset is different, and they have historical grievances, both real and imagined, that are very different. Don't make the mistake of thinking they're going to react exactly like you would react, because they aren't you. They're Russian, and that means they will act like Russians in response to this challenge that they now see. Will they blame Putin or will they blame the West? That's the big question. I'm betting initially they will probably blame the West. And the longer it goes, they may start realizing that Vladimir Putin is a problem. But we're going to have to wait and see. And this isn't going to be a five-minute thing. It may not even be a months-long thing. We are in for a generational change in Russia and wider Europe and the world as a whole. And we need to pay very close attention to how we get there because it will dictate what comes after. Vladimir Putin ain't going to live forever. And if we're not very careful, what comes after him might very well be even worse. So we better pay attention to how the Russian people react now as a predictive model of what is to come down the road on an area of the world that will continue to be a problem for generations to come. More Hertel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Back to her tell I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, just want to touch on this story because it's something we're going to dig into more later. Like we tell you on this program, uh, sometimes we take a day or two to let something breathe a little bit. Sometimes we have an issue that we want to get some expert opinion on. This story crossed uh, our radar. It's out of the Denver Post, but it's a story that could play out absolutely anywhere. This is a story I've personally experienced with having to deal with some of my own healthcare issues, even though. I was in the VA system. Getting the VA to pay for things can be something of an adventure, um, but it's something that's happening all too often. Uh, and we're going to have some guests on to talk about this in depth, but I just want to put it out there. I want you to go ahead and read up on it. Get your thoughts together on it. Um, Denver Post, the headline, she expected to pay $1,337 for surgery. A Colorado hospital billed her for $300,000 for this surgery. Um, it goes on. Here's the nut of it. Um, Colorado lawmakers in 2017 passed a law requiring hospitals to make some self-pay pi- prices public. And in 2019, a federal agency required hospitals to make their charge master prices public. None of those protections were in place when French, that's the person in, in question here, 
underwent her surgeries in 2014. Of the $330,000 bill, that's a six-figure bill, French paid $1,000. Her insurance paid about $74,000, and the remaining balance of $228,000 was disputed. Judges on the civil case initially found that the hospital's conduct was ambiguous, in large part because it did not disclose the reliance on the charge master, and it sent the case to a jury to determine whether French breached her contract with the hospital and how much she should pay. The jurors decided she did breach the contract, but only owed the hospital an additional $767. Centura, that's the hospital system, appealed, and the Colorado Court of Appeals ruled in favor of the hospital, finding that its contract was not ambiguous and that a jury shouldn't be allowed to determine how much money French owed the hospital. The Colorado Supreme Court will hear oral arguments on that issue, whether the hospital's pricing and contracts were ambiguous on This past Tuesday, uh, attorneys for French argued that the Court of Appeals decision gives too much power to hospitals and strips patients like French of the ability to make informed financial decisions around their health care. Health care is a complicated thing. We want to throw around buzzwords online and think that there's going to be a one-size-fits-all thing that solves every problem. Well, Medicaid for all will solve everything. No, it won't. Well, free market and getting all the government out, no, it won't. Healthcare is very complicated. The insurance mechanisms are complicated. Hospitals aren't hiding these prices just because they want to in some cases. There's actually regulation making them do these in certain ways. And then laws like Colorado change, but the laws in Colorado don't apply to federal. They don't apply to other states. This stuff's complicated. It's very complicated. And it's something that has become buzzwordy. It's something that people want fixed, but don't know how to get into it because of all those buzzwords. And we're going to dig into this further on her tail going down the road. Uh, I know from my own vast health issues, it's complicated, it's a mess, and it's hard to get into. But something that is a basic principle that we talk to talk about on this program all the time applies, some basic accountability. If the hospitals and the insurance companies have to tell you the costs up front, that would take care of a lot of these issues. We're going to get into how that might come about. We're looking at getting some guests in to talk about it. Just want to put this out there. This is just the latest example. You can find thousands of these examples. A lot of you probably have an example like this of a bill from a hospital or healthcare provider that didn't quite match up. We're going to look into it in the long term, something we're going to be covering in the future. Go ahead and read up on it. Denver Post, this particular piece, more Hertel, right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. All right, we're going to take a break from the news of the day and talk a little history. I love history. And one of our favorites to talk history with is Sarah Stook. She is over in the UK. Uh, she writes for the Mallard over yonder. And over here, she writes in electionsdaily.com, elections-daily.com. Our friends, a lot of those folks show up on the show and she's one of them. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on again. Oh, thrilled to have you. Um, I love this topic because it's so fun. We debate education a lot in America lately, the last couple of years, but we don't talk about the education of our leaders. And you've wrote a whole piece on presidential uh, education, especially their college education or lack thereof in quite a few cases here. What got you on this topic to start with? I honestly, it's one of those things that just came into my hand. I thought, you know what, that might be an interesting piece, because like you said, we don't really talk a lot about it I mean I've never really heard Joe Biden's education ever really come up yeah it was interesting because I don't I don't know it's almost like the more modern we've gotten the less it's mattered but part of the reason the less it's mattered is because 
the recent string of presidents, there's a lot of sameness. There's a lot of Ivy League. There's a lot of higher education. Uh, Joe Biden's a little bit of an exception to that. But, you know, you had the Bushes. They're both the Yale, um, Obama, Ivy League, uh, Bill Clinton, Rhodes Scholar, Ivy League. Is the sameness just kind of dulled it down to where we just take it for granted? Like, okay, the president's going to be some kind of Ivy League, highly education person now? Well, I think it matters more now because that education is more accessible. Up until maybe, I'd say probably even the 50s or 60s, education was very much dominated by white men with pockets, you know, women's colleges, historically black universities. But now pretty much anybody can go to college or university. So I think people, you know, they don't see it as impressive because everybody can. And talk about that, because one thing that that I've noticed uh, when I do history with presidents is there's been a big change in presidents. Um, You talk about it in the piece a little bit. You have people like Eisenhower and Grant, the military leaders. It used to be uh, you all almost always until really Bill Clinton, you had a president that at least had some kind of passing experience with the military. That's kind of passed away. Now it seems like you almost always have a pretty heavy or at least respectable education career as the basis of a political career. Most of them are lawyers of one stripe or another or business people of one stripe or another. That's a big cultural shift in the leadership of your country, isn't it? I think it's as the times go on, you know, and no, it doesn't seem like it, but it's said that the world is safer than it ever has been. Obviously, if you watch the news, you think, how is that possible? But, you know, America... In the early days, it was battling with the British, with the French, with the Mexicans, with the Spanish, with everybody. People led troops. But nowadays, a president can sit behind a desk and talk to his joint cheeks. He has that sort of cushion, whereas people like George Washington had to fight on all fronts, both literally and metaphorically. He didn't have the safety and the support and the structure in old America, whereas America's got pretty much a solid military system now. Yeah, it's interesting talking to Sarah Stook, talking a little history. All right, let's start with the current inhabitants of the White House and uh, one observation lane. Uh, the president and vice president, Joe Biden, uh, Delaware and Syracuse, you had some comments about his academic record. Uh, and then uh, Vice President Harris, uh, you just mentioned it. Women's colleges, historically back college. Howard has long been uh, a, a uh, very almost the very important in black education in America through history, but talk about both of their education careers now that since there are sitting officers at the moment. Well, it's, it, they, they're the first democratic ticket since the eighties, not to have at least one Ivy league under their belt, which is, you know, pretty interesting, very much. So Joe Biden basically admitted he wasn't really a scholar. He, he did okay at college and law school. He was not, really he's not really academic in the sense you think Obama was when you think of Obama you think of a pretty very intelligent guy and by no means I think Joe Biden isn't book dumb he's also not academic and Kamala Harris obviously like you said you went to Howard when you think of historic black college and university you do think of probably Howard Spellman usually first so I think that leans into a lot of her credentials advocating for you know she plays herself look I'm an African-American woman and you know when you've gone to a HBCU that really leans into her image a lot whether that was a conscious decision by her or she just thought um, that was the college for her yeah and then we talked about the Ivy League folks I found something really interesting in what you wrote too is we have quite a few college dropouts or they dropped out of one college went to another college Talk about that a little bit, because we don't think of college dropouts, at least in American parlance and in the vernacular, that's usually a a derogatory term. 
we have quite a few presidents that are college dropouts by the definition of the word, don't we? I mean, William Henry Harrison dropped out of pretty much everything. But then again, he was only president for a month, so I don't think it, it really matters here nor there. But, you know, presidents, they drop out, they switch. You know, Kennedy was all set to go to Princeton and decided he was going to go to Harvard, probably because his dad went there and, you know, the whole connections thing. Yeah, some transferred, some weren't interested. LBJ dropped out of law school, though I don't think he particularly needed to because he already had a pretty successful career. And for these men, I don't think it particularly mattered because a lot of them were either wealthy or you, when you could get a law or medical degree without even going to college. So I don't think it really impacted them as much because they could still you know, get away with it, as it were. Yeah, talking to Sarah Stuck, talking a little presidential education. All right, let's go all the way back to the beginning. The founding fathers, George Washington and these guys. We understand times were different then. There wasn't the university system like now there was. That came along a little bit later. They learned more of a type, I guess you would call it an apprentice system where you would learn from somebody else and get your education. Just because they didn't go to college, though, the founding fathers, especially Washington, these were very, very what they would call well-read, well-educated men. It just wasn't the college education like we think of now. Yeah, George Washington, he wasn't, you know, when you think of the fine fathers, especially Thomas Jefferson, he was, you know, very intellectually, absolutely a brilliant man. And those who spoke multiple languages, etc. George Washington, like you said, he wasn't a dumb guy. He wasn't unintelligent. But education was just never in his path. His father died when he was quite young. He had to take over the plantation. He got a, sort of a planter's education, so where he may not have been interested in Aristotle and Socrates, but he had more of a practical education. And that is what he needed. He didn't need to be an academic to do what he did. And obviously it clearly worked out pretty well for him. So as long as he could was, you know, literate, as obviously not many people at that time were, he was still able to lead the country and lead the army how he did. Yeah. And the other part of Washington that doesn't get talked about was he was a brilliant businessman. By all accounts, he was probably one of, if not the richest men in America by the time he died. So obviously, whatever education he has with his own wits and cleverness, uh, it clearly worked for him because he was successful by any measure you want to put to George Washington. Yeah, he was. I mean, his wife, Martha, was also excellent at it. Obviously, at a time where women's education was very limited, she proved herself extremely well, especially after she was widowed for the first time. So clearly he married a woman who he knew would be an equal partner to him. And I think, you know, that obviously, again, worked out very well for him. Talking to Sheriff Stuck. Okay, a fun thing that I think has passed through time, but something we should probably revisit with the mess our education system is, we have quite a few presidents who their their the whole of their formal education was apprenticeship. There was a time not too long ago, it's actually still on the books, although nobody does it anymore, that being a lawyer and studying the law was an apprenticeship thing. Uh, that got in the news with the Kim Kardashian stuff a year or two ago. It's still on the books. But we've had presidents, um, Van Buren, Fillmore, Lincoln, these guys all learned from an apprenticeship model that's archaic and we don't think about it anymore, but it was foundational to how they rose to the presidency. I mean, exactly. Lincoln, Van Buren. I mean, Lincoln barely had a formal education as it was. Van Buren went to his local school, for example. You know, they didn't have sort of amazing educational opportunities other had. So they went the apprentice route. And, you know, they said Abraham Lincoln basically taught himself he had a brilliant mind. And that probably got them into access to places in a, a university or college wouldn't. They're able to connect with people in their community and want to start building up on a practical level then that's how they get their education. And 
it worked. Again, you didn't need to be at Harvard or Yale. I mean, if you look at Andrew Jackson, who was, you know, he was orphaned during the Revolutionary War. He went through absolute hell, nearly died. You don't need to have that academia behind you. And I think that's definitely more so back then. I, I think somebody who didn't go to college would probably not be president today. I mean, I could be completely wrong, but, you know, when you look at Ron DeSantis, who's leading the Republican Pact, Harvard and Yale, you know, you're not going to get somebody who didn't go. Yeah, true. Uh, Sarah Stook joining us. One more item on this that you touched on in the article is a lot of things have changed. Some things have not changed at all. The presidents who did not go to college mostly was because of things like poverty, like access to care. You talked about Washington. Um, there was others that you listed about, you know, their fathers died, so they had to forego college. And this thing, they had to go to work and then they go to college later on. Those are universal themes. It's the same reason people don't get education now. And it's still applied to some of our presidents even way back then. Exactly. Like I said, you know, Lincoln, his family was pretty poor. He was, you know, if he could read and write, obviously he was a very clever man because he basically taught himself. But not every president is blessed to have been a George Washington or Thomas Jefferson born into wealth. However, that's changed. If you look at Bill Clinton, his father died before he was born. They lived in Dirtpoor, Arkansas, and he ended up going to Oxford, Yale and Georgetown. Obviously, that's because of our current system. But maybe 100, 200 years before, Bill Clinton would not have gone to, into higher education. He would have probably been maybe an apprentice, but he would not have gone to Yale. Yeah. Clinton was a Clinton's an interesting study in and of himself. You ought to just do a whole study just on Bill Clinton. Talking to Sarah Stuck, a little presidential history, education of the president's good topic to talk through. Uh, we come back with her. We're going to get into the Ivy League versus nine Ivy League and the future of presidential education. More with Sarah Stuck on her tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell, our good friend Sarah Stuck. She has written yet another great history piece. All right, this is the eternal debate in American politics, Ivy League versus non-Ivy League. Um, the Ivy League is racking up a lot of wins on the scoreboard as far as presidents go currently. Is there some kind of trend to explain other than just the power and the money and we understand legacy emissions and things like this, but when you studied it, what's the trend line of why so many Ivy League people uh, hold the presidency again a lot of it is down to well however there were some cases that weren't the heck case Rutherford B. Hayes went to Harvard his father died before he was born the family wasn't you know particularly wealthy then you look at Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin D. Roosevelt there was no way they're not going to go to Harvard they're Roosevelt's they're rich they're both very intelligent men they were going to get in no matter what the Adams family you know natives of Massachusetts from good families but that's also not that's an older thing. You know, Bill Clinton, like we discussed, very poor, ended up going to three extremely prestigious universities. Barack Obama, double Ivy League. And he came from sort of quite a moderate background, despite being fairly worldly, having lived in Indonesia. But again, if we look a bit closer to home as well, the Bush family, Yale, Harvard, Donald Trump, University of Pennsylvania, another Ivy League. So I think it definitely is about wealth and power however i think as times move on there are more opportunities for non-rich people scholarships etc you know in next couple of presidents we might have a harvard or yale graduate who wasn't from extraordinary money 
talking to Sheriff Stook. Okay, but it wasn't <laughs> this one kind of surprised me. I guess I knew it. I just never thought of it. It's not just modern people that were Ivy League, although it wasn't called the Ivy League then. John Quincy Adams, one of our earliest presidents, highly educated man, and you counted him as an Ivy League man. Yeah, he, you know, he briefly studied in Europe where his father was ambassador, but then he came and he went to Harvard. He was an exceptionally intelligent man, probably one of the greatest Secretary of States. He spoke seven languages, which is probably more than Jefferson racked up. So I think obviously, you know, his family being wealthy helped him, but I think he did have an extraordinary mind. And I think we have many, I think most presidents are intelligent. You know, people rag on George Bush Jr. for being a bit interesting in the academic department, but he still went to Harvard and Yale. Maybe it's because of who his dad is, but he still got all right scores. And he actually was better than John, did better than John Kerry did. And that was with a drinking problem that he has openly <laughs> exactly, talked about, yeah. which is interestingly enough. The non-Ivy League folks, a couple surprises in here. I didn't know this. I guess I probably should have. Nixon went to Duke. How did that happen? Well, he did actually get a scholarship to Harvard, but he couldn't go because his mother and brother needed him back home. And he, he would he was always so bitter about it. He, he never got over it. Which, to be fair, you can kind of understand. If you get the opportunity to sort of have and you have to turn it down. But yeah, he went to Duke, you know, and then a very clever man. But Duke is still a very good university. Might not be Harvard, but again, it still worked out for him in the end because I think he was a man who had his mind set on it. And I think, you know, for all his flaws, Nixon was a very determined man. And I think he was actually extremely intelligent. You know, there's a clip going around talk, him talking about Russia, which proved to be very correct. Yeah. Um, another one, people, this is probably one that people would get wrong if you asked them as a trivia question, because Thomas Jefferson is so ingrained into the history and lore of the University of Virginia. But he actually went to William and Mary. Yes. You know, he did find University of Virginia. So, you know, he couldn't have gone if he hadn't have founded it before his own teen years. Yes, he went to William and Mary, which is still a um, very prominent college and university in Virginia. So, but again, Jefferson was an extremely brilliant mind from a wealthy family. So again, he could have got away with going to an Ivy League or not going anywhere at all. Talking to Sarah Stook, our friend who does these great history pieces, talking about uh, presidential education and college. Okay. Let's project a little bit. You actually kind of did a rundown of some potential uh, presidential candidates in the future. There's a whole lot of Ivy League on that list, isn't there? Yeah, I still think there's so much power. When, like, you know, Ron DeSantis is leading the pack uh, for the Republican front, if you don't count Donald Trump, you know, people sort of think he's a bit of an outsider, but he's a double Ivy League. So he's clearly not stupid and he's clearly a very educated man. But, you know, there's hack of Harvard and Yale's. Then you've got some non-Ivalese, like Nikki Haley went to Clemson in South Carolina. It just sort of depends on whether you think of them as a particularly academic person. That's not to say, you know, if you don't go to an Ivy League, you're stupid. But we do tend to associate the Ivies with academia and wealth as well. Right. And this is a bipartisan thing. We talked about the Republicans. You list the Democrats, uh, some of the name folks going on. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who's currently uh, Transportation Secretary, Harvard, and uh, a little place called Oxford. I'm assuming that's a nice college somewhere. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I, my daughter did an overseas program there. I know how prestigious it is. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, Yale and Ch University of Chicago, which is a very well-respected school. Julian Castro, Stanford and Harvard. An interesting name on this list, though, for the Democratic Party. 
I found this really interesting. Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor of Georgia again, uh, going to be a tough candidate. Spielman, Texas, Austin, and Yale. That's an interesting combination. Yeah, I mean, I did look at I, my main logic. It was just to look at sort of the ba- um, the batting and see you know, who's highest because obviously you don't know who it's going to be next time. Thought I'll, I'll put her on the list, and I was generally surprised. I, mean, I didn't think of her as you know particularly unintelligent, but I just thought, wow, really? I'm saying I didn't expect Yale in there, but you know, good for her, I guess. Talking to Sarah Stook about uh, presidential and potential presidential. All right, here's another one. This is kind of like Jefferson. If you ask a quiz question, you probably get it wrong. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts. She is so well known for being at Harvard. She taught there. She was the dean there for years and years and years. Had students like Ted Cruz underneath her. A lot of interesting cross matches there. But she actually went to Houston and Rutgers, which is, of course, the uh, State College of New Jersey of all places. Again, you know, what if you think about when Elizabeth Warren was young, would she have necessarily had those opportunities to go to Ivy Leagues? What in when would it have been like the sixties, seventies? You know, you wouldn't probably have had women really go. I mean, Columbia didn't accept women until nineteen eighty two. So, you know, she probably could have gone, but Rutgers again, very respected university. But I think that actually plays well to it because I think she does give off kind of that establishment vibe as much as she tries not to. So I think that actually would play in her favor, personally. Yeah, talking to Sarah Stuck. Okay, the elephant in the room. Have we seen the last non-college U.S. president? I would think so, yeah. Um, you know, a lot of Americans don't go to college, and I think it's a society that is actually a lot more of accepting than others. But it's it's the pathway. You know, it's not necessarily that people maybe wouldn't vote for them, but you get so much more opportunities by going to, especially, you know, having in Yale, you're connecting with people. If you look at who, the roommates, um, Al Gore was roommates with Tommy Lee Jones. You know, really random combinations. You're going to meet, have those connections, meet those people, and that's how you're going to get to the top. Is it fair? I wouldn't say necessarily so. I think, you know, you don't have to go to university or college to make something of yourself. You can still drop out and be absolutely fine. Yeah, talking to Sarah Stuck. All right, one other education trend, and this wasn't in your article, but I'll throw it out at you. The other path besides just education has always been the law and lawyers. Do you see any trend with presidents that have been or were lawyers moving up as opposed to it seems like we have kind of a trend going of they studied other things besides the law, business, government administration, these sorts of things. They're still getting those Ivy League educations, just maybe not necessarily in the law. Yeah, I mean, law is probably quite a good one because you probably have to have a fair knowledge of it to get into politics. You know, obviously you can say, depending on your political affiliation, you think, how the heck did these people get into it? But, you know, the Bushes booked that trend probably because they were more of a business family, as it were. But the people like Nixon and Clinton, who came from middle America, it was a way of, you know, making something of themselves, of using their brains, you know, and it got right, um, the map out of their homes and becoming doing amazing things. Abraham Lincoln self-taught from the middle of Illinois and Kentucky to becoming president. Law is definitely the path. You don't see many doctors become presidents, but you see lawyers. All right. I'm going to flip this around on you because you are uh, one of our UK friends. Uh, that accent ain't just for show. You actually are from over yonder. So let's talk Boris Johnson for a second, because for all his mannerisms and the jokes and the memes and the hair and the goofiness and the scandals and all that stuff, 
he had a very traditional education path to the prime ministership. It's a different system. But when you look at his resume, you have Eton <laughs> and you have uh, Oxford. There's also a pretty well-hooned path to, to the, what do you call it, the premiership, I guess, in, in England. They have kind of the same problem here. You kind of got to get in that rut of higher education to get to the top, don't you? I think there's, yeah, there's definitely more of a class system here by, you know, quite a, a long shot. It's just, it's incredible. I mean, Oxford, Oxford's older than the Aztec Empire. You know, these things are entrenched in our system. I don't know anybody who's gone to Oxford or Cambridge apart from maybe one person I met once. So, yeah, Boris Johnson, he plays buffoon, but he, you know, he quotes gr- Greek and Latin like it's nothing. Eton, it's what you expect from a boy of his generation. And well, Oxford, David Cameron, Oxford, Theresa May, Oxford, um, Blair and Brown both went to Edinburgh, so they sort of books for the trend slightly. But you know, Margaret Thatcher went there when women didn't really do that. You know, Churchill, every they it's just how it is. You're not gonna get too many, even John Major, who came from a council state, he still went to an Ivy League, uh, Ivy League, sorry, um Oxbridge. So yeah, it's definitely more of a thing here. Kirstama, you know, very clever. He went to a good university. When you look at who the favourites are, you know, Rishi Sunak, our um, chancellor, he, you know, he studied at Stanford, I believe, as well as Oxford or Cambridge. So, yeah, definitely here, more of a class system. And But it's kind of easier for us to vote people in because it's by party membership. So the part, people will vote on it. So whereas you guys, you have your primary systems, et cetera, it's much more of a membership system here. So we could a lot easier vote in somebody who didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge, but unfortunately the top people, especially within the Conservative Party, um, went to Oxford and Cambridge. Yeah, talking to Sarah Stuck. Okay, overall, when you look back on this, you studied all the U.S. presidents. What's the thing that really jumped out at you that you learned and went, wow, I did not know that? I think, you know, people do think of it very much idly and it's not as profound as one might think. I mean, yes, still definitely dominates the system, but, you know, Reagan didn't go to an Ivy League, neither did LBJ, Nixon, but then maybe went to West Point or the Naval Academy. It's not as pronounced as one might expect. Um, I think that's definitely, we're going to probably see more non-Harvard, Yale, et cetera, in the future. However, like I said, when you look at who's in the running for both Democrats and Republicans, it still remains pretty entrenched and I'm surprised it is as entrenched as it was I thought you know I, I was surprised about Ron DeSantis being a double Ivy League but again didn't think he was like not intelligent by any means but I'm just surprised because he portrayed himself as an outsider but went to the two most elite um, universities in America. Sarah Stuck, I, I got to ask you to close this because it was just too funny the way you wrote it and the verbiage you used. Tell us about Kennedy's entrance essay to Harvard. Oh, I love this so much. They also John Kennedy went was a very elite family. And even though they were Catholics, which was a bit, you know, taboo at the time, you know, Summers and Highness Port, New York, Massachusetts, whatever, he basically wrote his admission and went, I'm rich. My dad went there. I want to be a Harvard man and got in. So, you know, clearly standards were pretty lax. And I'm pretty sure this trended on Twitter a while ago. I don't think that would fly today. I mean, you could maybe offer to buy a new library, but I don't think Bill Gates's kid could write and say, yeah, my dad's rich. And that is also the beginning of the theories on who really wrote Profiles in Courage, but we'll leave that for another day. (laughs) 
and time. Sarah Stuck, uh, you always do great. We love talking these little history things to bring some perspective and take a break from the world. Uh, let folks know where you are on your social media and your writing. Uh, and so folks can follow you and keep up to date when you put out this great stuff. Well, I have an article coming out in the Malad um, next Tuesday, March 15th, which you should all remember because it is a very special person's birthday. Um, questions include what if the Russian Revolution failed and what if Bill Clinton was impeached? And I'm also doing a 10-part series because there's a lot of people to get through of First Ladies. The first one should be out by the time this airs and it goes from Martha Washington all the way up to Elizabeth Monroe. So you'll read all about these amazing women, plus the hostesses, the daughters-in-laws and the sisters who got through. Yeah, follow me at Sarah underscore 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 Stu. And yes. Oh yeah. Sarah Stuck, great stuff. Always enjoy having you on, my friend. And we will definitely be talking about first ladies and all that other stuff you're writing about when it comes out. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, man. Welcome back to Hertel. I want to bring your attention to uh, our friend, M. Carpenter. She tweets at West Virginia Esquire. She's our senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Her weekly legal feature, Wednesday Rich, she touches on two Supreme Court rulings involving congressional maps, one in North Carolina, uh, one in Pennsylvania. Now, the North Carolina ruling had some uh, written explanations. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh offered a concurrence to it to explain why he did not side with Republicans. This is M. Carpenter writing in Ordinary-Times.com. Kavanaugh did not necessarily agree with the Democratic position, but he felt it was too close to election season to make the changes, citing the Purcell principle. Purcell was a 2006 case in which the court opined that election rules should not be changed close in time to an election because of the uncertainty and chaos last-minute changes can cause. Important to note, at one point a couple of years ago in North Carolina, we had a congressional district had to vote three times in the space of about 18 months because of court cases. So it is an important principle. It does cause all kinds of chaos and hot mess. But Kavanaugh, talk, back to M's piece, tossed a bone to conservative court observers by making it clear that he thinks the issue should be examined in full on its merits, not just in a case coming right before the primary season. And Kavanaugh's latter argument formed the essential basis for the dissent penned by Justice Alito and joined by Thomas and Gorsuch. He states that it is high time for the court to give this issue a full review and stop punting. But it is clear he has an opinion beyond just what thinking the court needs to resolve the controversy, she ties this together with the Pennsylvania ruling that did not have any explanation or concurrences or dissents, but SCOTUS denied the injunction for the Pennsylvania case, sent it back down to be heard by a three-judge panel again, which can, can order the losing party. Uh, she writes this way, it seems clear this one, meaning the Pennsylvania one, was rejected for not having jumped through the procedural hoops. Uh, required to arrive at the high court, but it may come back. And we now know how three, possibly four of the justices talking about their dissents and concurrences on the North Carolina ruling are likely to come down on. Uh, we will continue to follow this story. Of course, midterms, uh, we just had the census. That means redistricting. This all goes into the election year that we are having. It all goes into how we are governed. It has a lot of legal implications, has legislative implications, has electoral implications. Complicated story. We have to follow it piece by piece. You can get with M. Carpenter's piece on these two important rulings. You can also read them at, for yourself at the links. More Heard Tell right after this.
Hi, welcome back to Hertel. We always take this last segment to try to do something uplifting, some positive news, because most of all we have to talk about, let's be honest, is bad news or crises or bad things going on in the world. Um, you remember the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago? Uh, Andrew Whitworth, he's the starting tackle for the L.A. Rams. He may be retiring because with Tom Brady out of the picture, he's now the oldest player in the NFL. But right before the Super Bowl, which he won, and congratulations to him, he was elected the NFL Walter Payton Man of the Year. Now, this is an award, very prestigious. It's for the person that does the most off-the-field charity work of note. Um, and I want to bring attention not just to his charity work, which is impressive. He has a thing called uh, Big Wit Homes for LA Families Program. He donates $20,000 after each Rams home game. He makes donations to repair homes in his home state, Louisiana, and he moved Angelinos facing housing insecurity into affordable homes. Hurricane Ida in Louisiana last August, he went down there personally and did a rebuilding together charity, these sorts of things. And with the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, he got $250,000 for the charity of his choice. But I want to bring uh, attention to what he actually said. This is a big award ceremony. It's televised. What he said, I think, has a lot of value here. He says, and remember, he's talking to his peers. It's a room full of NFL stars. I'm here to tell you, quoting Whitworth, we have more work to do. Social media has been great for bringing awareness to all our causes, but that's not enough. We need more action. Whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, this is the truth. The people who come to see us play, who watch our game on TV, buy our jerseys, who follow you on social media, they're why our game exists. It's why we have a field to play on. We are financially supported and provided the opportunity to play a kid's game because of the support we receive from communities across the country and around the world. But how are we supporting back? In what way are we paying it forward to the same communities we all grew up in, we all came from, or maybe the people that we've seen struggling along the way to get where we got? He says this, um, it's called an investment. Andrew Whitworth speaking at his uh, Man of the Year Award. You can apply three things to any charity or cause you have a passion for. I want you to hear this. You can invest your time, you can invest your finances, or you can invest your voice. It doesn't matter which. We just have to keep investing in each other. Let your heart lead you all the way. That's sound advice for everybody. You can invest your time, you can invest your finances, or you can invest your voice. If you really care about something, you'll invest all three. Because your time and your money and your attention usually tells you where your heart is. We talk a lot on this program about judging people by their actions, not their words. His actions lived up to it. And if you're putting your time, your voice, and your finances towards a cause, that tells us what's important. So maybe take a self-evaluation and find out what you're doing with those three things. Even just online, where are you spending your time online and leading your voice to? Is it on noise and mess and caterwauling, which is what we don't do here? Or is it on the important things that will still matter a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, two years from now, 20 years from now. We're the most recorded generation in history, folks. They're going to be able to look at our social media and know exactly what was important. Are you talking about the aggression in Russia? Are you talking about government accountability at home? Or are you arguing about stuff somebody said on the internet that 20 years from now, they'll wonder what in the world you were talking about? Good advice from Andrew Whitworth, Super Bowl champion. Says he might retire, might not. Good man. Hope he sticks around. That'll do it for Hertel. Uh, we always appreciate you. Uh, this was the biggest week in watches and listens and downloads that we have ever had. We've had week over week growth since we started the daily program back in December. We are blown away that you have joined us 
daily. Um, we had over a thousand people just this week, brand new to the program. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, we kind of started doing this just to have a voice because we didn't find the media that we wanted. We didn't want to complain about it. So we just started doing it. And it's very, very meaningful and humbling that you join us for this for an hour a day, every day. Hour a day keeps caterwauling away. I think it sounds like a good little slogan for us, doesn't it, folks? You keep listening. We'll keep doing it. Uh, make sure you're subscribing however you're watching or listening, whether it's on YouTube or any of the podcasting platforms. All those platforms have a share button. Make sure you smash it. Send it out to your friends and family. Let them know that our program is worth their time. It's the most precious thing any of us has, like Andrew Whitworth was just saying. And we will never waste your time. We will bring you well-prepared, well-thought-out stories about things that really matter. We're going to do it again tomorrow. Friday will end up the week. Excited to get through it. Weekend coming up. Hope you have plans. So wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well-fed. And we'll talk to you tomorrow to end out the week on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.